0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam kasten Smith, and I am your host. And here with me today is Will Bushman, our color commentator. That's right. And director of student ministries here at Rio. And we're going to do something a little bit different uh, for the next three episodes. We apologize for not having an episode for you last week. It has been like a crazy town. And right now we are doing this in the middle of expecting a hurricane (laughs) in the next 24 hours. And so we are hopeful that we get back on schedule, but we're going to be doing something different while the church is doing a three week series following the church United platform. And they'll be going through series on the Lord's prayer and John chapter 17 and something else, which I'm not sure I even know what that is yet. Do you? Yeah. It's the prayer for harvesters. Okay. The prayer for harvesters. We're going to do something different, and that is going to be going through a a series that we actually did on Wednesday nights on 14 reasons why Jesus came in the first century and just looking at how God sovereignly orchestrated the world, the circumstances, everything that was going on throughout the ancient world to be such a perfect time for the Son of God to appear and for the gospel to just explode all over the ancient world. Yeah, I'm excited because I haven't heard this yet. All right, cool. That's right. You don't come to my class because you're doing impact at that yeah. time, and probably you wouldn't anyway. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure so, it's great. But if you really, st- you have to stop and think about it because we we take for granted that Christianity is you know it's in every nation. You know, you go anywhere and you you're able to find Christians now. You're able to find churches, even if they're underground. But. If you hopped in a time machine and you went back to the first century when Jesus had just died, he'd been resurrected, he spent 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven, and he gives them this mission, which is really quite stunning, because you have to remember, there were 12 apostles, one of them has hung himself, there's 11 left, and Jesus is looking at these guys who are not the most educated people, many of them are fishermen. They're not super well-equipped to handle a mission like this, and Jesus looks at them and says this, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of,' listen to this, "'all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age.'" And so you're looking at 11 guys, you know, and and probably other disciples who are who are there with him, but he's speaking primarily to them and eventually, you know, this this command remains relevant for us too. But he's saying, "I want you guys, this small group, to go to the many, many nations out there and I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you." And if you're honest for a moment, and you're you're hearing Jesus say that, You're thinking there's no chance, there's no way in the world that we could do this unless there is something absolutely supernaturally powerful about this.
1: Yeah, and it's quite the task to be given. Like imagine the disciples' shoes. I mean, they probably, A, don't want Jesus to go because they've walked with him for three years, Mm -hmm. which even in training time, that doesn't seem like a lot of time. I mean, we go to school for decades yeah and then we start our profession so here jesus is saying okay you've just walked with me for three years now i'm giving you all the power that i have to do exactly what i'm calling you to and it's not a small task Mm -hmm. like you emphasized all nations is quite
0: the task to get to yeah that's that's amazing i mean if if we were to say hey we're going to start our own religion and will came up with a list of rules i (laughs) mean and we gathered a dozen guys and we said okay there's hundreds of nations on the planet right now. If you go to the United Nations, it's like there's a bunch of them. Something. I want you to make all of them go go to all of them and teach them to obey the rules of will. <laughs> you know, and and baptize them under in the name of will. Like you would hear that mission, and you would go, "That's impossible. I'm not even I'm not even going to get out of bed to try that." Yeah. And yet, Jesus tells them something that gives them hope mm-hmm. that what he says is going to be carried out, and that is. Something that God always tells his people when he gives them an insurmountable task, and it's the last part of the Great Commission. It's when he says, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hmm. And if you go back in the stories of scripture, uh, when Moses is called to go confront the most powerful empire on the face of the planet to free his people from slavery, it's not Moses that's the secret weapon. You know, God tells Moses, "I will go with you." When when Moses brings them out in into the wilderness, and Joshua is about to lead them into the promised land, and there's seven mighty nations that are in the promised land that Joshua is going to have to to contend with, it would be normal for Joshua to say, "I'm oh like, we don't stand a chance." Like it's a it's a group of untrained slaves and their children. Like what chance do we have? And yet, what does God say? I want you to be bold and courageous. And why can you be bold and courageous? because i'm going with you mm. and so the hope isn't and anything that we bring to the table the hope is always that god brings a victory when he promises to go with us and the 11 apostles are hearing this and they hear jesus say i will go with you even as he's about to leave right he's going to send the spirit to go with them yeah. and they have total confidence in a way that they, they can't possibly understand how this is going to happen and yet they do commit themselves to carrying out the seemingly absurd impossible mission all right so if, if you were looking at the first century you know you you had kingdoms that were to the east but in judea the the whole world it seemed like was controlled by the roman empire in fact if you were to walk the shorelines of the mediterranean sea every part of that shoreline was controlled by the roman empire in those days hmm. they controlled all of northern africa they controlled spain and france and and southern germany italy greece turkey Egypt, all of that was under the control of the Roman Empire. And so everything seems ordained, and we're going to get to why that is. But there's a a guy named Michael Green who wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church, and he says this. I want you to listen to what he says because it's spot on. He says, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the obstacles that lay in their way. But it's equally true to recognize that probably no period in the history of the world was better suited to receive the infant church than the first century A.D. And get this. He says, by the second century, so within 100 years of Jesus, Christians had already begun to argue that it was divine providence which had prepared the world for the advent of Christianity. So they're looking back at the previous 100 years. And they're saying, oh my goodness, Christianity has spread so rapidly, so explosively, that it seems like God perfectly prepared the world for Jesus to come at the precise moment that he did. And what we're going to talk about is exactly that. Because in Galatians, it tells us that that's exactly what happened. In Galatians 4, listen, listen to what Paul is saying. He says, we were under slavery, under the basic principles of the world. And then he says, But when the time had fully come, so like imagine an hourglass, like exactly when the last sand came out of there, when it had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. And so what Paul is saying is God was so precise in the timing that he sent his son and it was for a purpose And that is that the world would receive him and that we would find liberty from the law which we can't keep
1: yeah it's amazing to even just have a little thought about like the omniscient god (laughs) the all-knowing god chose this moment in time Mm -hmm. and out of any other time Mm -hmm. technology is what it is people are what they are the culture is what it is and
0: he said okay this is when i'm sending my son yeah it's fascinating so I'm going to, in the next three episodes, we're going to go through 14 reasons why this particular time was perfect, 14 reasons for why the gospel just exploded. And in this episode, we're going to be paying special attention to how God had prepared the Greek world and the Jewish world precisely for this time. And so, the first one, this is one of my favorite things about history because it's one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to the Jewish people. Mm. And yet, in hindsight, you can see how God used this very traumatic event for the furtherance of his gospel, and that is, number one, the Babylonian exile. So if you went back to the days of Moses, God made a deal with the Israelites, and he said, if you worship me, if you stay faithful to me, if you if you trust me and that I'm going to be with you then I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to give you peace in the land. You are going to be blessed in the promised land. It's going to go very well for you. But he says, if you don't, this is Deuteronomy 28, verse 58 to 64. He says, if you don't follow me, if you you leave me and worship other gods, you're going to be uprooted from this land you're entering. And the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And sure enough, How many years is that? A thousand years goes by after Moses and you get to 586, a little less than a thousand years. But in 586, you have this massive empire, the Babylonian empire that is just blowing up. And they are the massive powerhouse empire in the world at the time. And God is is sending a flurry of prophets, right? This is when Daniel comes and, and this is when Jeremiah comes and Ezekiel comes. And they're saying, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. And what does Israel do? They spit in God's face, which they were really good at. <laughs> and God says, you know what? I'm going to hand you over. I'm going to hand you over to the Babylonians. And Ezekiel comes along and he says, a third of you are going to fall, die by famine and a third of you are going to fall by sword. But a third of you, I'm going to scatter you to the winds, just like Moses warned. And that's exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar. And you got, I want you to imagine being an Israelite. You're in 586. So for 400 years... After King David, you've lived in this, this kingdom that's been mighty and expansive. You've had the temple. You've had tons of riches. You've seen Solomon. You've, all the glory of Israel has been there. And you're thinking, we've been here for 400 years and God has spared us again and again. Surely he's not going to allow us to be conquered. Well, he does. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar and the massive Babylonian army comes to Jerusalem and they burn the entire city down. They tear Solomon's temple down. They take the survivors of that, and they lead them into exile. And with the intent that they were going to destroy Israel forever, they take all of the survivors, and they spread them out all over the place. And they take the most qualified and the best of them, like the prophet Daniel, and they bring them back to Babylon to serve the Babylonians. And so what happens is when these Jews are scattered all over the ancient world, They don't just say, oh, we're giving up on Yahweh. You have faithful Jews that are are scattered to northern Africa and all throughout all these locations of the Roman Empire and to the far east and in Greece and in Turkey. And they start building these synagogues. And what are they doing in these synagogues? Well, they're reading the prophets that are promising that God is going to send a king who's going to build an everlasting kingdom filled with justice and peace. And he's going to restore the nation, and he's going to call the exiles home, and he is going to build an everlasting eternal kingdom, right? So all of these synagogues that are all over northern Africa, and all over Egypt, and all over Italy, and all over Greece, and all over Turkey, and all over, you name it, Phoenicia, everywhere there's these synagogues, and they're just soaking in the prophets, right? And so, and you hear this, remember when in the story of esther when you have haman who's wanting to convince the persian king this is after the babylonians he's trying to convince the persian king that he wants to kill all the jews he wants to commit a mass genocide against the jews and what does he say he says in esther chapter 3 verse 8 he says there's a certain people and how does he describe them dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom Hmm. so the persia was huge the persian empire was huge And he's saying, they're scattered all over every single province you have. Well, when they're scattered, they're also building synagogues all over the place. So why is that important for the gospel? Well, when the apostles go out and they're spreading the gospel, they don't just go random places. Where do they go? To the synagogues. (laughs) To the synagogues. And why are they there? Because God just so happened to allow Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy his temple. And if you were living as one of those exiles during the hundreds of years that you were in exile, what would you be thinking? God, what could possibly be your purpose in this? Why would you send us scattered all over the, the world? Why not restore your kingdom? Why not make your temple what it was? Why have you done this to us? And I mean, you hear those cries, some of them in the Psalms. And what's the answer to that? Why did God allow that exile to happen? He was working against the methods of the world to accomplish something that was gonna be far greater. Because when Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, he goes from city to city to city to city, and everywhere he's going, he's going to these synagogues, and he's like, hey, these, these prophecies that you've been studying for centuries in this synagogue, guess what, he's come. Hmm. He came, he died, he was resurrected, he has, he's the fulfillment of all these scriptures and all over the ancient Roman world, these synagogues start catching a blaze for the gospel. And so why did God allow that exile? You know, And it, that's instructive for us because yeah. a lot of times you think, why would God allow our country to fail or seemingly be failing like it is? Our country seems like it's <laughs> totally walked away from God. Yeah. It, it seems like everything is lost. And you often wonder, what could God possibly be doing and, and it's helpful to look back at history and see, okay, well, the Israelites thumbed their nose at God. They, too, were wicked. Their nation fell. And yet God used even the fall of that kingdom to advance his gospel in a way that was far mightier than it would have otherwise been.
1: Yeah, so the faithful remnant was out there. They were scattered. Totally. They were primed. They were ready so that when the evangelism came... You already had some low-hanging fruit that was like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been anticipating this, and it's finally here, and
0: we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's an encouragement to the remnant that's here today because it it can get really, really discouraging to look at the condition of Western civilization or all of the blessings that we've inherited that seem to be being squandered, right, and and the wickedness that prevails in our land. And yet God used that remnant to go plant these synagogues and all over the world – to be faithful even as the world was growing increasingly dark for the for the Jewish people and then God sent just a tsunami of the gospel that would not have been able to grow that quickly had God not established beachheads all over the world with these synagogues of these exiles. And so that's great news for us. You know, God never wastes suffering. And if you if you follow the missionaries, they're going to these places. So it's really really fascinating. God does not waste the exile. All right, so number 1 was the Jewish exile. That helped the gospel spread like wildfire. Number 2 is a command that was in the Old Testament that God commanded each of his people that there were three there were three major festivals during the course of a year where Jews from every nation under heaven were required to come back to Jerusalem in order to celebrate these feasts in God's presence. So the first one, and the most famous one is Passover. Yeah. The next one is what we refer to as Pentecost. And then there was also a Feast of Tabernacles that also came later. Well, why is that significant? whenever when Jerusalem swelled, so every time you'd have one of these festivals, The population of Jerusalem would grow like many, many times its normal size. They would be camping in tents on the hills. They'd be staying in relatives' houses in all the villages surrounding Jerusalem. They would have to buy massive, massive, massive numbers of animals to sacrifice. It was a big, big, huge festival that they would have to depend on, but you have people, and I want you to imagine okay, so now there's Jews because of the exile that are in places like North Africa and they're in Italy and they're in, let's go through the list again, they're in Greece and they're in Turkey and they're all over the East and they're in Persia. They're all over the place. God celebrates a feast and witnesses, and I'm using that word very intentionally, witnesses from all of those places come together in Jerusalem and guess what happens at Passover? Hey, there's a guy who is claiming to be Messiah who has done some crazy miracles. The Jews are referring to him as a sorcerer, and all of it because he's doing these crazy miracles that they can't explain. And all of a sudden, they're claiming that he is blasphemous. They're marching him through the city in a kangaroo trial. They put him on a cross. They kill him. That was like a wild episode of their Passover. And then three days later, as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is underway— All this news is coming around that this guy has defeated the grave. His disciples are claiming that he's alive. 500 people claim that they saw him alive. And now all of a sudden there's rumors going around that he's the fulfillment of all these prophets and what they spoke of in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and so many different prophecies. And he fits all of them like a glove Tons of them who either saw him or talked to eyewitnesses, having seen him raised from the dead, guess what? They all go back home. Hmm. And what do they do when they go back home? They just keep it to themselves. Yeah, yeah, sure. Don't tell anyone. No, they're going back and they're like, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. And news of the resurrection, news of the gospel is spreading in all of these places long before the apostles ever get organized to send missionary journeys. And you see that in the writings of the apostles where Paul, even on his first and second missionary journey, are saying things like, man, your faith is growing and spreading all over the world. He's, you know, he's never even stepped foot in Rome when he writes the letter to the Romans, and he's saying that their faith is spreading all over the world. Well, how did it get there? And by the way, one of the other really interesting things is if you talk with scholars, they will say that the gospel of Mark was the earliest gospel written. And they put it at being written sometime between 55 and 65 A.D. Paul's writing his letters starting in 48 A.D., and he's already saying that the gospel's exploding everywhere. Mm -hmm. When Nero sets fire to Rome, what does he blame the fire on? The Christians. Christians. And when did that happen? 64 A.D. So there's a massive population of Christians in Rome in 64 A.D. when Nero sets fire to Rome and blames the Christians. Well, if Mark hadn't written the gospel yet, why do they believe it? The oral tradition. Yeah, because people had seen it. People were talking about it. There's news that has come back to Rome from eyewitnesses, not not penned to Gospels yet. Mm. And so the Gospel was already spreading before the Gospels were ever written. And then 50 days after Passover, you get to another one of these feasts, which is Pentecost, and a great miracle happens. You have... Tons and tons of people from all over the world that are at the temple, and here Peter gives a sermon, and he talks about how Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he's giving this incredible sermon, and the Holy Spirit during that festival had fallen on the apostles. People are hearing other people speaking in their own tongues. This miracle, this movement of the Holy Spirit is going on, and people are like, I've never experienced anything like that. God is pouring out his spirit on people who believe in Jesus. 3,000 people are baptized that day into the Christian faith, the the largest harvest that the church had seen to that point, and they all go back home. And what I love is in Acts, listen, listen to the list. Mm-hmm. That Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he gives us this list and he says, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then he's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't think you understand. This is who came. This, this is who saw Pentecost, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and he's listing out all of these people that if you were to look at it on a map, it literally looks like an explosion where these people have come from every direction surrounding Jerusalem, and now they all go back home. And they go back home saying, you wouldn't believe what we saw. You know the rumors that we just heard that Jesus was the Messiah? It was confirmed, you know, Jesus had been promising them that he was going to send the spirit, that he was going to do a great work, that this kingdom was going to advance and God's power was going to come and inhabit them and and live through them. We saw it with our own eyes. We experienced it. We were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And now when they go home, my goodness, everybody's going, this really is the Messiah. And the church begins to explode all because, all right, one, you have these synagogues, because the Jews were exiled, and two, now they're having to travel from those faraway places to come to Jerusalem where they see these miraculous things. They see the resurrection, they see Pentecost, and now they go home not even intending to be missionaries and evangelists, but they're just going home going, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. And the whole world is exposed to the gospel overnight
1: yeah these are large populations of people sure right this is not just one guy that comes back to town like guess what i saw no this is like a lot of people are corroborating this evidence or are saying okay no we saw it too this is all real so Mm -hmm. again primed ready for the gospels to be written ready for the apostles to go out
0: but people have already gone out way before those guys even did completely so in 50 a.d Paul's second pen letter, he's writing to the, the people of Thessalonica, which is Macedonia. And he says that their faith in God had gone forth everywhere. That's 50 AD. That's before a gospel is written. Hmm. How, do, where, how are they getting that? It's before Paul even traveled there. Like, how is their faith everywhere? In 57 AD. So, again, before Mark's gospel could have possibly been widely circulated, he's talking about the Romans. And he's commending them because their faith was being reported all over the world. That's Romans one eight. Paul had never been to Rome. Mark hadn't been circulated yet. So how are they finding out about Jesus? In 62 AD, when Paul is writing from house arrest, he's telling the Colossians, which is a city in Turkey, that all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now remember, there's no way Mark's gospel could have been widely circulated by 62 AD if its earliest pen date is is 55. So everything is being turned upside down. It's not a result of, you know, there's this theory, you know, like Dan Brown and, and his books and stuff, oh, the apostles got together and they conspired to create this false religion and to make Jesus up. News about Jesus is spreading before the apostles even get organized. It's all over the place. And you see the emperors, Claudius especially, who's sending, you know, the Nazareth edict where he's saying I don't want people stealing bodies out of tombs. And it's called the Nazareth inscription because he sends that to Nazareth. Why is Claudius worried about somebody from Nazareth being taken out of a tomb? Why is Claudius telling the, the ports of Palestine, that they're no longer allowed to travel to Alexandria, Egypt, because they're creating too much strife among the Jews. Why is Claudius kicking all of the Jews out of Rome that we learn about in Acts chapter 18? Well, Suetonius, an ancient historian, tells us that they were being stirred up because of Christos, which is Christ. Like, so Claudius, who reigns from 41 to 54 A.D., before mark before the apostles get organized is saying this christ person is really causing a problem for my empire the news of somebody being taken out of a tomb is really causing problems for rome and it's before anything is organized by the church and you don't
1: get to the emperor's desk with some casual rumors. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's not just some whispers that they're like, oh, we heard about Jesus. No, this is like, Claudius is like, no, this is enough of me to start writing and start yeah, thinking.
0: And it's crazy. He sends an eat Ed- to Nazareth. He Nazareth, shouldn't even know where Nazareth is. Correct. It's a podunk. like it's, It'd be like a modern day redneck town out in the Everglades. Like It is not a major metropolis that you would expect the emperor of Rome to address about a body being stolen from a tomb. I mean, like, come on. <laughs> Like, so this is a big deal long before the apostles get out of bed with the gospel, which is fascinating. So, number one, you have the Jewish exile and the the creation of synagogues all over the world. Number two, you've got all these pilgrimages, which are kind of like God's way of just <laughs> creating missionaries and evangelists almost against their will. Like, they don't realize what they're doing but that's exactly what God has ordained because they're going back home even if they don't believe it. They're going back like some some weird stuff's going on in Jerusalem yeah, these days. <laughs> yeah. Don't know about it yet but Yeah, and people are I'm going to, you know, make a mental note of that. Something's going on. The guys claiming to be a Messiah, you know, all of that is coming. But then number 3 The destruction of the temple, and by the way, none of this is good news. Like, if you were looking at this objectively, you wouldn't go, "Oh, hooray! Jerusalem was destroyed, and we all got thrown into exile. God is accomplishing His purpose, right?" Yeah. Or we have to travel over land and sea, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles because we were scattered. Because we were scattered. Being scattered. (laughs) Yeah, this is not good news. Like, you're thinking, "Why, God? Why are you doing this? Why are you making me live in Rome and travel all the way to Jerusalem to do this?" Well, He's got a purpose. And the third one, it seems like God couldn't possibly have a purpose for this. And it's the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And the way that this comes about, the Jews who lived during that day hated the Romans. And so they launch a rebellion. And I want to say it's 66 AD or something like that. And the Romans come back and they say, Oh, really? And they just level the place. I mean, they come in and burn the temple to the ground. Jesus had prophesied this when he says, look at that temple, not one stone will be left standing on another, right? Jesus said that this was going to be torn down. But the Romans just come in and sack it. I mean, they sack Jerusalem, they tear down the temple. And why is that so significant to the spread of the gospel? Um Well, Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, it says Jesus left the temple and was walking away and his disciples come up to him and they're calling his attention to the buildings. And they're like, oh my gosh, look how beautiful Jerusalem is. And Jesus says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. What's fascinating about this is if you're a Jew, you know, there's two things that really define your religious life and that's the temple and the Torah. So the Torah was the first five books of Moses. It was the law. It was, you know, this is how you live. But the temple was how you had access to God. It's where you went to find atonement. It's where you sacrificed animals for the forgiveness of sins. It's where you went to the priest. It's where it's where God dwelled on earth to meet with humanity. You know, even though they were separated by a veil, it was where god's presence was it was a big deal and now all of a sudden god's presence no longer dwells in that temple right you can't you don't believe that it's gone the temple's been destroyed your sacrifice what does it mean there's no altar anymore how how do you find atonement you don't have a priestly system anymore where do they serve like everything about your understanding of how you're made right with god how you gain access to god is destroyed when the temple is destroyed? And why? how does the gospel just serve up the perfect softball to, to relieve that, to alleviate that, that tension? And it, it's this, you know, Jesus comes along, and what does he do for you? He takes everything that defiles you. You remember when, from the garden, they got thrown out of Eden, why? Because all of a sudden they were defiled. And and defiled people can't be in the presence of a holy God. Sin separates us from God. What happens on the cross? Jesus takes all of your defilement. He takes all of your sin, and he gives you his perfect righteousness in standing before God. And now all of a sudden, you're worthy in the courts of heaven. You're worthy in the standing of God to now re-enter Eden. But he does something even far greater than that. He comes and enters you. He makes you into his temple, and now because of Christ, you're worthy. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Now Christ comes to dwell in you, and now you become the temple of God. Jesus said of himself, tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Well, what Who? What was the temple he was talking about? His body. His body. So Jesus is the temple. Then you get to Hebrews, and It's answering this great tension, right? Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 to 26. follow, Follow me. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. You don't need the Levitical Aaronic priest anymore. Why? Because Jesus is your priest. He is the one who intercedes for you always. He says, it says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because, I love this line, because he always lives to intercede for them. That means that right now, whether you realize it or not, whether you're asking for it or not, if you belong to Jesus, he always lives to intercede for you. That means he is pleading, the blood is pleading for you to God the Father. Your favor is secure because your great high priest constantly intercedes for you. And he says, such a high priest meets our need. We, we don't need those priests anymore. Unlike the other high priest, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, 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 no. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all time when he offered himself, right? So you don't need a priest outside of him. You don't need sacrifices that are outside of him because he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the lamb of God. And so Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, listen to this. It says, When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through a greater and more perfect ta- tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. He's talking about himself. He didn't enter in by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, the presence of God once and for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And he goes on in Hebrews 10, and he says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So that Torah that you're looking at, that's just pointing you to the nature of God, which now you have in Christ. It's not about you being good enough to keep Torah. No, 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 he kept Torah for you and gave you his righteousness. That was just a shadow pointing you to the reality of who he is. For this reason, it can never By the same sacrifices offered repeatedly, endlessly, year after year. Like, you're never going to be made right. You constantly have more to sacrifice, more to sacrifice, because you keep on sinning and, you know, a a bull or a goat isn't good enough. It'll never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because, hear this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so you get to this, you know, the destruction of the temple. And why does that make the gospel explode? I can't find atonement anymore. Mm -hmm. Where's my temple? Where's my altar? Where's my sacrifices? Where's my priestly system? And it's all gone. And yet here is Jesus saying, I'm your temple, I'm your high priest. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come to me. Yeah, it's beautiful
1: even that God would take that option away from them. Because you can imagine in between this series of, you know, Jesus being crucified, resurrected, and risen, and all these words are coming out. I'm sure there's a bunch of people who just kept looking at the temple like, no, this is our thing. Mm-hmm. Like we have our thing. We we mm-hmm. don't need this Jesus. Like we're just gonna go back to the old things that we know Jesus was described as lesser. We know that they're not the ultimate sacrifice. But this is what we know. This is what we're comfortable with. This is where we're at. And as humans, that's a normal spot to be. But then God and his graciousness was like, temple gone. Yeah. So now uh, you have a need in your soul that you know you need atonement for. Like, that's not the problem. The problem is your method of atonement is now wrong because of what Jesus has done.
0: That's a really good point. All these people that had been so leaning on religion rather than relationship. I mean, the temple kind of allowed them to feel safe that, well, look what I do. I dress up in my tassels and my robes and I take my animals and everybody comes to me in the priestly system and blah, 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 blah. And you get lost in the religiosity of it and you miss Jesus when he comes by. And now all of a sudden all that's gone and what are you going to do? How are, how are you going to gain access to God? And here you have the Savior of the world who comes and says you don't need it any anymore. I'm here directly to dwell with you and to be with you and to make you right before God. Keller says, he has a great line where he says, Jesus was the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I love that. It's really rich. All right, so... Jewish exile number 1 number 2 pilgrimages to Jerusalem number 3 the destruction of the temple now number 4 we get into some of the greek influences that came upon the world which are i, I just i can't even overstate how significant these were for the spread of the gospel and so uh, starting first off you have the conquest of alexander now alexander conquered massive massive territories of land he conquered everything from like Turkey and Palestine all the way over to India. He conquered huge, huge territories of land. He conquered Egypt. He conquered Macedonia. He conquered Greece. He, he conquered massive, massive amounts of land. And one of the things that happened out of this is the Greek language mm-hmm. that came. And all of a sudden, everything that dealt with government, commerce, education science all literature religion everything all of a sudden became kind of standardized with a hellenistic with greek religion and so when you get to jesus's day that carried over and now all of the roman empire which extended to the west in addition to all those lands of the east Now, Greek is the official language. It's the official language of Libya and Egypt and Arabia. It's the official language of Judea and Syria and Persia and Greece and Macedonia and all of Asia Minor. Well, why would that be important for the spread of the gospel?
1: Makes sense. You got to talk about it.
0: People have to understand it. Yeah. And when the gospels are written, they're in Greek. They're in Greek. That's right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all written in Greek. The New Testament epistles written in Greek. And so when they spread, everybody picks up. These scripts that are going around, and it's all in a language that they can understand. It's, it's ready right there for them to be spoken. You know, even in our modern-day language, just a little nerdy, nerdy nugget, but out of 171,146 English words, 41,214 of them come straight from the Greek. So we, we inherit hmm. even the English language largely from Alexander. And even in those synagogues that we talked about, this is, this is cool. Um, if you go about 250 years before Jesus' birth, a group of Jewish scholars in Alexandria, northern Egypt, it's a, a city of tremendous intelligence, and you know the Alexandrian library was there. Really, really important, huge Jewish population in this city. They created a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So if you've ever heard the word Septuagint, that's what this is. So 250 years before Jesus is born, Greek scholars come together and they say, hey, you know what, let's take the Hebrew scriptures, and because we got synagogues all over the place amongst people that are Jews that maybe don't speak Hebrew anymore, let's make it in the common language. And so they translate the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, and so all of those synagogues that are spread out all over the world had been talking about the promises of God in the Greek language that not just the Jews understood, but all of the Gentiles from those territories also understood and had heard. And even when you go into the New Testament, it was like the the Septuagint was something that Jesus read and the apostles read, because when you look at Old Testament quotations that are found in the New Testament, they approximate that 86% came from the Septuagint translation. And so this was tremendously common even among the religious people of Israel during that day. So, again, even a huge obstacle in what I guess we'll call
1: pre-evangelism mm-hmm. was just God just wiped out. Yeah. Like, no longer is that – that's a hard obstacle to be like, if the Jews in town are like, hey, we have these books and we need you to read them and study them because you really want this stuff. You mm-hmm. need this stuff. But you got to learn Hebrew. Yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just a walk
0: away. I, I, I've taken Hebrew. Yeah. It, it's not, it's two not two like super simple. Two semesters is enough, yeah. <laughs> and so – you're absolutely right. God is doing the work of pre-evangelism. And again, if you were in the mind of a first century Jewish person who didn't see how all this was tied together, you would look at the exile and go, that's bad. Mm-hmm. You'd look at the long distance, you've got to go for the pilgrimages, and you'd go, that's bad. You'd look at the destruction of your temple and you would say, well, that's definitely bad. You would look at the fact that you're veering away from the Hebrew scriptures and you would think, oh, we're losing our culture. Yeah. Now it's in Greek. We've lost even more. And you would think that's bad. And yet God is using all of this. It's like a judo master that uses the weight of the culture and the wickedness of the world and he uses it against you and slams it down to accomplish his purposes. God is always doing that. And so it's it's really, really wonderful that God does that. We, When we tend to think of first century Christianity, where do you think of it? Just around Jerusalem, really. Just around Jerusalem. All right, so when you imagine the first century church spreading and your, your imagination, Paul's missionary journeys, all that, which way do you imagine it spreading to the West? You imagine it spreading to the West and going into Greece and Macedonia and Rome, all the places that Paul writes, but he, the reality is... Christianity had a major presence in Syria and Persia and parts of Arabia, Mesopotamia, Turkestan, I'm reading a list here, Armenia, and and India, right? With all these outposts, even in China, we have evidence of early churches founded by Thomas in India. Like, and so the most, all of that, North Africa was the most Christianized region of the Western Empire. Some of our greatest church fathers came from North Africa, like Tertullian and and Cyprian and Augustine, like, And all of these places are covered by the Greek language, which is really, really fascinating. Just as a nerdy note, Rodney Stark, in his book, Triumph of Christianity, he says, by the year 300, it's plausible that more than half of all Christians lived in the East and in Africa, so not in Europe, which surprised me, right? It says in 325, 55% of the bishops that came to the Council of Nicaea were from the East, By 500, more than two-thirds of Christians were outside of Europe. And so it wasn't until Islam came and decimated all of that that Christianity became more Eurocentric, right, European-centric. Initially, North Africa ran the show Hmm. and and to the east. There were massive numbers of Christians uh, to the east, and there's lots of reasons why that declined. Part of it was, and this is another throwaway comment, but when when, – Constantine came along and he said we're going to give religious freedom but he made the Roman empire a Christian empire all of the other kingdoms that were outside of the Roman empire that didn't get along with Rome felt like Christianity has sold its soul to the Roman empire and they felt like you know second class citizens or red-headed stepchildren and it diminished the the christianity and and all those realms. All right, so then we get to number 5. And number 5 is the conditions that existed in the world just before Jesus is born. You have Caesar Augustus who comes to power over the Roman Empire. And he begins his reign begins what's known as the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. And it was a time, and I mean, there's still skirmishes and battles going on here and there, but there's no major conflict. There's no major civil wars anymore, which Rome had been plagued with prior to that. And so all of a sudden, everything in the Roman Empire gets abnormally peaceful. There's no major world war kind of events going on. The History Channel describes it this way. It says the political stability encouraged money lending and allowed long distance trade to boom so now all of a sudden you have all these long distance trade routes why would that be good for the church because they're going long distance they're they're trying to sell something but it's it, you know yeah. it's it's not merchandise it's it's eternal treasure right Sea commerce thrived as the Roman Navy under Augustus largely cleared the Mediterranean of pirates, which prior to this had been a major problem. If you were a boat out on the seas, people would come and steal your boat and your merchandise and put you to death and sink your boat. Romans purchased luxurious silks and gems from the Far East, so massive trade routes go into the Far East. They found markets for their glass and rugs as far away as India and China, which When Thomas and others of the apostles go to the east, they're using those very trade routes. So God has prepared everything using the Pax Romana. And here's another one. This is another reason. Number six, there's a unified political system. The Roman Empire controlled huge, huge territory of land. In fact, like the Roman Empire encompassed 2 million square miles, or 20% of the global population is contained in what Rome controlled. And so that made everything easier for travelers and merchants and evangelists. So I was I was putting this together and I was thinking, you know, if you tried to recreate Paul's missionary journeys using today's map, it would have been like super complicated, right? He Static. would have, he would have had had to have passports and visas to enter Syria, Lebanon, Cyprus, Turkey, Italy, Greece, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Malta, Israel, and several other independent nations. It would have been tremendously complicated, but as a Roman citizen traveling through a Roman empire that's all one unified political system. Just moved along. Yeah. He traveled freely, as freely as he wanted to. Um, And so uh, another thing that Paul, you'll notice that Paul does, it's very... strategic of him is he's constantly establishing churches and really building up his churches in port cities hmm. why well there's so much commerce in the Roman world at this time because of the peace and everything economically is booming that you have people traveling through port cities like Corinth and Ephesus you know just with tremendous numbers and why would you want to be an evangelist in a port city I mean more people are coming to you yeah pe- not only are people coming to, you, are coming to you coming to you but guess what? They're also going back home and they're taking your message with them. It's why, you know, have you, you ever watched the movie Airplane? Mm-mm. Oh, come on. It seems old. It is old, but it's, it's a, it's, anyway, whatever. There's inappropriate parts in it, but it's funny. It's, it's a funny movie. But anyway, in that movie, there's a part where Robert Stack, who's, you know, this old kind of gritty pilot, is coming into an airport and everybody's storming up to him like, trying to convince him to become a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. And that used to be what would happen in airports is you'd huh. go in there and there would be tons of evangelists trying to spread their message. Why? Well, because you're going to take that message and go to the ends of the earth. It's kind of like, you know, like the flowers that when the wind blows, their seeds just catch the wind and go real far. That's the idea, and they're going to, you're going to plant seeds all over the world. And so that was Paul. So where did he go that was a port city? Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Miletus, Troas, Smyrna, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus, all the cities where he really invests to build a church, they're all port cities. Why? Because at that time in the world, Rome is a, is a, an economic powerhouse with lots of travel. Um, and all that's made possible with the Pax Romana and that unified political system. And the last thing that we're going to close on for this episode, number seven, Rome had built a massive system of roads that's unparalleled in the world, in world history. So you go to these ancient cities that are scattered all over uh, Judea, Turkey, Greece, Macedonia, Italy, and you will find these Roman roads that are still there in, in all of these cities. And what they would do is they would build them, with huge, huge rocks, boulders dug into trenches and dumped in there and then bricks on top of that and then stones on top of that and then pebbles on top of that compacted with dirt and overlaid with these cobblestones on top. And they still exist to this day. They're still in pretty decent condition considering that this was done 2,000 years ago. Well, what that did is if you're traveling with supplies, normally if you had a donkey and, you know, let's say a a cart behind you, and you're just going through normal terrain, it's like impossible. It could be a huge mess. Oh, my goodness. Everything is constantly shaking and breaking, and your wheels and axles and everything else is bra- Like you just couldn't travel. But now Rome had 50,000 miles of paved roads like this, and they had another 200,000 miles, 250,000 miles of unpaved road. And just to give you some context for how absolutely wild that is, when Dwight Eisenhower launched our interstate highway system and everybody said, oh, that, that took America and just made us a massive superpower, and industrial powerhouse, all of that's true. So like I-95 and all these massive interstates. Over the course of four decades, long after him, when that project came to completion, the United States had built just 46,000 miles of interstate highways. That's crazy. The Romans built more paved roads (laughs) with the lack of technology that they had 2,000 years ago and, in total, 250,000 miles of total roads. So they made America's interstate system look petty, (laughs) you know, minuscule by comparison. And so these roads made everything far, far easier to travel. And, you know, I'm going to show you, our audience can't see it, but that is all of the Roman roads that you had in the ancient world. And you can tell exactly where all the territories are. It looks like Man, you could go anywhere you wanted to with those roads, all through Spain, all through France, going up into England and southern Germany, all through Greece and Turkey and all through northern Africa, through Egypt, through Libya, Morocco, it, you, anywhere you wanted to go, these roads enabled you to travel. And so that would have been tremendously helpful for the, the apostles and the early evangelists. And again, I want to stop and i want to say every one of these things like if you were a jew and you were thinking these rome the romans are oppressing us they're so powerful that they just kind of impose their will upon us they're they're building roads for their commerce and they're they're building you know unified political systems where there's no boundaries anymore there's no sovereign territories they just control everything none of this stuff would have been seen as oh my goodness this is this is really good for us not one and yet with the benefit of hindsight, you see that God used each and every one of these things, each and every one of these seven items that we've talked about so far, to so perfectly set up the spread of the gospel with conditions in the world that had never been that optimal at any point prior to that. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it really is amazing. If you just once you
1: stack all of that and look at it from a different perspective, it is wild to see that, no, God was doing something in all of this, mm-hmm. right? Just like he always is. It may not seem like it in the moment, but obviously we have thousands of years to look back and see, but we can see that, you know, the fullness
0: of time Jesus came. Yeah, God is in charge of every single thing. And so when we get into our next episode, I think this is probably my favorite When you get into the prevailing ideas at the time and what the Greek philosophers had come up with and what they were teaching, when you hear how Jesus not only so perfectly fulfills the scriptures, but Jesus comes and he perfectly fulfills everything that the philosophers had been longing for, but all of these philosophers kept coming up short saying, I just don't know. I don't know that there's a hope for justice. I don't know that there's a purpose for living. I don't know. Philosopher after philosopher after philosopher and the language that they were using, where they came up short, you'll see Jesus comes and perfectly fulfills everything where they had fallen short. It's really fascinating. I'm hoping you'll join us uh, for our next episode as we continue to talk about this kind of perfect storm for a gospel revolution with god orchestrating all of these events together so that the gospel would absolutely explode. And why do I want to teach about this? It's not just because I'm a history nerd, though that's true. It is a comfort to me to see that when so many things line up that seem like they would be setbacks for the people of God, that our God sovereignly weaves all of these negative headlines together to accomplish precisely his purposes in a way that they could have never been accomplished without these setbacks. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. He uses even what man intends for evil to advance his kingdom. And we need to keep our chins up. We need to keep our optimism alive because our God reigns on the throne and there is not one molecule out of his control. He is writing a story and it is for his glory and for our good. And that's where we put our hope. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll join us next week as we jump in, or in a couple of days since we're way off schedule now. Who knows? (laughs) As we talk about additional reasons for why this first century was so perfectly orchestrated for the explosion of the gospel. Have a great week.